And even though you're receiving a booklet or you have a booklet from last week, I would also ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. It is hard to describe the book of Ephesians succinctly. So I'll just tell you it's stacked. How's that? That seems like a good way to understand it. It is a book that is stacked with grace. It is a book that unfolds realities about ourselves that we probably would not readily know. I think it's interesting that any time that the question is asked, who are you? you will normally find that you immediately connect yourself with your occupation. Or you will find some way to talk about if they have some sort of family relation, what that connection might be. But those really tell things about you that doesn't tell who you are. Who are you? That might be a challenging exercise in itself to figure out who you are. Anybody want to take a stab at that? What's that? Child of the King. When somebody asks you, say that. Why? Because you want the doors of evangelism to be wide open. They may think you're a space cadet. Who cares? You got nothing to lose. You've already gained everything. Let's be honest. We have a privileged position before God the Father, all because of His Son. And no reason found within ourselves. That is the definition of grace. It is God's unbelievable merit and favor that He says, I am for you totally for no other reason that my Son made it so. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty pride stripping, which is incredibly necessary. And it is very God-exalting, which is always necessary. And that is the way that we should look at every facet of our being. Because we have been called to greater things. We have been commissioned with greater tasks. And we have blessings that overflow that we don't even begin to grasp. Even when you grasp them mentally, it still takes a while for them some reason to trickle down and really pierce the heart. And that's what I believe that Paul wants to do here in Ephesians, is so unfold the incredible and magnanimous blessings that you have in Christ that you can't help but to respond and praise to Him. So let's do a quick refresher. Last week we saw this. Paul, there's our author, right? He's an apostle. There's his calling of Christ Jesus, no other. And notice that it was God's will. It's what God wanted. And so this is the reason why he is an apostle. God wanted it. Paul did it. That's the end of it. To the saints who are at Ephesus, and there were some questions about this, about whether or not it's actually included in the text because it's believed because of the lack of detail in some of the manuscripts, that this is actually a letter that was put down. And while the truths are no less absolutely true, There are no specifics going on as far as people and connections that Paul would have had. So, it would have came to Grace Bible Church in Portage, and maybe we would have sent it over to Faith Bible Church in Rio. And they would have easily put in their name there, and they would have passed it on, because these are truths that are true across the board. Now, if you want something really helpful to do, I actually don't have one with me, I took it home. In those booklets, you turn to the very back, you'll notice in the very back you have a blank page. It wouldn't kill any of us to start a collection of who God says I am. Because the very first thing that God says that we are, are saints. And the definition of saints, and if you have the New American Standard Bible, you'll notice in the margin, it will say that we are holy ones. We have been set apart by God in Christ. So when you, someone who is living for the world, Sin sick, all about yourself, heart is corrupted, sin nature is full-blown crazy, with no God and no hope in this world. Come face to face with the contact of the gospel message, which is Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave. He took your place in the death that you deserve, and not only did he 
pay the sin penalty for you, but he is triumphant over hell, death, and the grave. Now he's exalted at the Father. We believe in that. We now receive his righteousness as our own. So we are as righteous as Christ in God's sight because he sees us in his Son. Why no amens? That's a good thing. If you're a believer in Christ, that's you. You're righteous. Raise your hand if you feel righteous. Oh, I love it. They were like, yeah, that, no. You know why you refrain from raising your hand? That's grace. I don't feel righteous, but I am righteous. Praise the Lord. No one can take that away from you. So you are a holy one. When you came to faith in Christ, God set you apart for himself. You have been separated from the world. And notice, and who are faithful. Remember, Pastor Steve said those who show up and those who fess up. Those who are in relationship with him because of Christ. And those who are seeking to enjoy that relationship in him, which gives way to what's called fellowship with him. So experiencing an ongoing, growing, and intimate relationship with God because of Jesus Christ. That's the idea. That's what be faithful is considered. Now notice all this is here. It is in a place in Christ Jesus. This is your location. And yes, my C's look like E's. There we go. Your location as a believer is in Jesus. If you don't know it, you moved. Okay? The U-Haul instantaneously packed all your stuff and you're there. All ready to go. You are in Christ. That is your spiritual zip code, period. That is your location. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we step into what many consider to be a doxology. In fact, some people have said this might actually be equated with the idea of what a first century early church hymn would have looked like. Because it's nothing but praise and praise and praise and praise to God for what he's done. Now it's interesting because we find this word in some form three times in just this one verse. Notice that we have blessed, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What does it mean to bless God? Thank you, sir. Man, passing out pens and water. Anybody else want anything? Just kidding. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. What does it mean to bless God? Now, notice when we look at this, there's some sort of, it's not a trade-off, but there's two sides of something that's going on here. Notice it says here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God is the subject. And notice that the identification is always put together in relation to Christ. Now here's the reason why that is. is because God is who He is, but all of who He is could never be on our stead if Christ was not in the middle. Does that make sense? So anytime you hear me repeatedly talk about how God looks at us through Christ-colored glasses, it's because that has got to come in between ourselves and the Almighty. He is integral and indispensable of redefining exactly who we are, and He is the channel of which imparts every blessing of God to us. Now, when we deal with this idea of being blessed, you would actually get a lot from literal word uh, because it deals with the idea of a eulogy. In fact, the, 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 the word eulogy is a transliteration of the Greek word it's it's moving it from greek into english and giving us a word of which to understand and then you say well wait a second eulogy isn't that like a funeral term that seems kind of morbid and bad no not necessarily because hopefully you're saying good things about that person the opportunity to bring about a eulogy is to reflect upon the contents of who they are and what they have done guess what If you were to walk from Genesis to Revelation, what surrounds the worship of God, giving praise to His name, always contains two vital criteria. Who He is, 
what he has done. Every time. In fact, I would say that would be the analysis of every song that you ever hear that is to be ascribed to his name. Does it make much of who God is and what he has done? If it does, that's what we need to move forward to. Exodus chapter 15. The children of Israel turn around and take a look and the waters come in and sweep away all of the threat of Pharaoh and his army to come back and get them. And they burst into this spontaneous song. It was the most amazing level of karaoke you've ever seen in that time. Because they're talking about who God is, what he's done, who he is, what he's done. You want a good Bible study throughout the week? Go through chapter 15 and just bracket it out. This is telling me who God is. This is telling me what God has done. And there's every reason to praise his name. When we talk about to be blessed here, we're talking about eulogizing. Anybody know how to say that? I don't. God. God is to be praised. Or let's say it this way. Paul wants to start with worship. Let's begin this letter after our greeting about worshiping God, and let me give you all kinds of reasons why to worship Him. Now, one thing to remember about this structurally. From chapter, sorry, from, from, from verse 3 to verse 14, there is no punctuation in the manuscript. None. Paul just all the way through it, okay? He's so jazzed about everything that has happened to us that he just goes for it and unfolds it, and it's huge. It's like taking a drink from a fire hose. So we're actually going to go very slow so that there's no confusion about all the pieces that we're looking at. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice this. Who has blessed. Notice that that's past. Or say it this way. And this is something that I hope that you will get used to. It will get burned in your mind. Already blessings. You as a believer in Christ. Me. Even me. As a believer in Christ have already blessings. They're not blessings I have to attain. They're blessings that are already there. In fact, I wrote this down so I wouldn't mess it up and get it wrong. Already blessings are not earned by us, but by Christ who died on the cross. Nor are we waiting for their application to our lives because we're already in Him. So if we're in Him, they already apply. Being in Him is the criteria for these blessings of God to be us. Why? Because he grabs God's hand and he grabs our hand and that is the channel of blessing that takes place. Nor are we needing more because Christ is already seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, Jesus was done and he sat down. The payment was made on the cross, it is finished. Sins are paid for. But when he resurrected from the dead, he resurrected as God's perfect high priest brought the sacrifice of his own blood into the temple of God, offered it perfectly, and once that offering is placed before the Father in heaven, in the temple in heaven, he sets down. Why? Because he ain't got nothing more to do. He did it all. And one thing that we get lacking a lot of times when Satan tries to creep in and throw us under the bus is we lose sight of Christ's sufficiency in what he's done. Either Jesus did a good job or we need to help him out. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. We went back to Indiana after Christmas. And no matter how many times I sit at Beth's mom and dad's table, their dining table here, it is the wobbliest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so you're trying to eat, and every time your fork goes down, it's like... And finally I looked at her mom, I said, is it possible maybe we could do something about this? Have we attempted to mess with this? Well, I don't know. We should. So she talks to Beth's dad. Jeremy's willing to help you with this. Jeremy's going to help you work on this. We should get this done. We take this table apart. We take pieces. We go to the hardware store. We figure out how to round this thing out. Getting it in there. We got ratchets. Man sounds are everywhere. It's amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. And we get that thing put back on there, and I sit down at it, and it goes. And I thought, 
There's a sermon illustration here. Because this situation is worse after I got involved than it was if I would have just left it alone. If we would just leave Jesus alone and let it just be his work, is Jesus wobbly? No! Don't read too much in the illustration. Every illustration breaks down. But if we would just leave his work alone, we would find that we understand it and can appreciate it and embrace it much better than us getting involved. Because every time we do, we taint the work of Christ. And any time we take upon ourselves a shoulder of responsibility that rested solely on Christ in a finished way, we begin to doubt our salvation. We begin to doubt his love for us, his acceptance for us, because somehow we're not equaling up when Jesus said the work is done and he decided to sit down once it was finished. Does everybody make sense of that? So why do we praise him? Well, notice, he has blessed us, so we already have all of these massive blessings with every, okay? That means none excluded. Every spiritual blessing. Have you ever been in a situation where you don't feel like you measure up? Daily. You know what's amazing about that? You don't have to. Why? Because Paul just told me that God secured for me in Christ every spiritual blessing. That means there's not one spiritual blessing that I don't have. That means I'm not lacking in any of them. That means as far as whether or not I'm worried about measuring up, it must be to some other nature besides God's perspective on it. Because God said, you will always measure up because you're always in my son. In him is every spiritual blessing. Guess what? You're so identified with him, you have every spiritual blessing. The blessings that are true of Christ are true of you. There is no gap. There is no, well, Jesus is here and I'm here or I'm here or I'm here. No, Jesus says, I love you enough to bring you here. And he allows us to share in his blessings. I don't deserve that. No one in this room does. Nor outside of this room. That's why it's grace. So we're not lacking anything, spiritually speaking, at all. Now one thing I want you to watch, and in fact, you have homework, okay? From verses 3 to 14, I want you to go through and mark every personal pronoun where the author, Paul, includes himself. Let me show you. Who has blessed us. See it right there? Here's what I do in my Bible. I write P-I-P. You say, Pip, that's dumb. What is that? It means personal, inclusive pronoun. It means that Paul is telling me something that is just as true of him as it is as true of me. Not only do you have every spiritual blessing that Jesus has, you have every spiritual blessing that Paul has. Paul's not a better Christian than you are. You see that? Called to something different? Sure. Given a different skill set? Yes. Have different training? Absolutely. Maybe he was gifted with different spiritual gifts as the Holy Spirit saw fit to bestow on him? Absolutely. But you are never a lesser than before the cross. You are never a lesser than because you're perfectly complete with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And Paul sees us on equal ground. The playing field is level with him. Everybody see that? Inferiority has no place. None. If it does, it's because Satan is trying to get us all messed up about what God has said. No, Paul says, me, you, together, in Christ, perfect. Absolutely perfect. So anytime that you see this, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in, this is the realm. And I'm going to go ahead and ask you to think outside the box here. Ah! Go back here. Technology. The word places is not actually here in the Greek, but it does a good job of filling it out because what it is is actually when you see heaven, the word is plural. In the heavenlies is probably how it should be best translated. 
in the heavenlies. And you find this is mentioned five times in the book of Ephesus. The only other book that mentions it more is Hebrews. It mentions it six. But when you look through here, you've got a pretty consistent, well-rounded idea of what does he mean? In the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. In the heavenlies. Heaven is another dimension. Understand that. How do we know that? Revelation chapter 6. When the sixth seal is broken open, we're told very specifically, the sky will roll up like a scroll. And the people of earth, who are kings and all of them, are going to see the Lamb of God on the throne and they are going to freak out and try to hide themselves in the rocks and pray that rocks would fall on them and kill them to try to hide them from the eternal God. So when the sky that you see outside rolls up like a scroll, on the other side of that blue sky is the throne room of God. It's another dimension. That's just how cool God is. I can't phrase that or put it together, but that's what it is. Read Revelation chapter 6. You saw it in a movie. It's got to be true. I'm sure somebody around here has got a Polaroid of it. I don't know. Maybe. But heaven is another dimension. But as cool as that is, as, as much as our spiritual standing with God is complete, the means and the method to get us there is even more profound. And this is why he keeps bringing up in Christ. Because it is our location. Now let me give you a little something on this that I thought was amazing. <clears throat> what would you understand in the first century if you were dealing with this concept in Christ? You're of the church of Laodicea or Ephesus or whatever, and you're receiving this letter to yourself, and you're taking a look at it. You're reading through. Greek is a very precise language, and so it's going to tell you exactly what it means and what it wants to say. And I thought this was interesting. The expression in Christ does not arrest our attention as it would of first century Greek readers. Our English word in is used more loosely than the Greek word in, which it translates. Normally, in would be, was used to refer to someone located within a city or within a house or in a boat, but not ordinarily of someone's person being within someone else's person. Paul's Ephesian readers would accept the phrase as good Greek, but they would stop for a second look at the surprising concept. Just as we have a woman that is with, this, with child, when she gives birth, she gives birth and that child is now in the world. So it is when the new birth takes place, the spiritual birth takes place, we come out of the world and we are placed in a person. We are placed in Christ. This is just how secure and locked up we are and how absolutely covered in his person that we are. It's all about him. And it's all about his location. You say you're making a big deal about it. It is a big deal. Have you ever thought about when you believed in Christ that God did something so miraculously as to spiritually move you into a brand new place? A brand new acreage. A brand new realm. A brand new standing. And it is a standing that is not only perfect in his sight, but heaped full of blessings of which he seeks to lavish upon us should we ever desire to receive them for ourselves. That's another part of this. The blessings are already available. Whether or not we're receptive to them has a lot to do with whether or not we believe God's word and what he's done. So this idea is absolutely incredible. They go on to say this, because I thought this was important too. When we follow Paul's use of the expression, we discover that to be in Christ means that in a real sense, the Christian has been placed, located within Christ. In Christ signifies that whatever Jesus Christ is before God the Father, the believer shares his, and here it is, identity. Who are you? I am a child of God because I am in Christ. No one can ever take you out of Christ. Notice, because he or she is within the Savior. It is the Father giving the believer the same exalted status that Christ in all his glory now holds. It is the Christian's full identification with Jesus Christ in the eyes of the Father. Now that's got to make your whistle just happy. Because we immediately reflect upon or have come to our mind the reasons why we don't deserve this. Understand this, grace is never about what we deserve. If we were getting what we would deserve, it certainly wouldn't be grace. 
But grace is about us always getting what we do not in any way whatsoever deserve ever. That's God's business. God is in the business of gracing people. That's what He desires to do. Now, this idea of verse 3 stands as what I would call an umbrella statement. By the way, if you're not familiar with this, if you go on our website, gbcportage.com, up in the top right-hand corner, there's something called Pastor's Blog. From last week's lesson, I've got notes and notes and notes. I'm posting a ridiculous and almost nauseous amount of notes on there for however much that you would want to see. Has anybody seen those yet? Okay, is it a lot? It's a lot. Okay, great. You're going to get more. From this week, you're going to get more. We're only covering one and a half, one and a quarter verses, okay? But it's the reason is, is because what we're getting ready to look at now has been so bogged down with baggage, it's been unbelievable. Now watch this. This umbrella, every spiritual blessing. Well, Paul, what are those? What does that look like? Can you explain those to me and help me to understand? Well, number one, we move into verse four. Something that I've done in my Bible, and I use a, a single, single margin Bible, so it all just kind of goes down. It's not double margin, single margin. But I'm able to take verses 3 through 6, and the emphasis here is on God the Father. You actually find that the Trinity is going to be unfolded here in verses 3 through 14. But the first verses between 3 and 6 deal specifically with God the Father. That's where the emphasis is. Now watch this. Just as, or in the same way, or let me give you an example of this, what it looks like. Notice that He, that is God the Father, chose, what's this? Say it, who said it? PIP, it is a personal inclusive pronoun. Now watch this. He chose us in Him is your location. Okay? That's all we're doing. Stop there. Number one, Paul includes himself. So when we deal with this idea of being chosen, it's not anything different from Paul. Now, this subject of choose or choosing, chosen, is what is commonly understood as election. Election has absolutely rocked the theological world and has for quite a long time. Different people have subscribed to different views of what in the world they think this might mean. And so I'm going to do the best of my ability that I can within the allotted time that we have in order to help give you some food for thought about how we should understand this, okay? So I move on. Number one, the salvific view of election or choosing. What does the word salvific mean? Well, number one, it will help you in jeopardy. Number two, it's talking about the idea of what pertains to being saved. It's the idea of salvation in general. What does that look like, okay? So some people take this view, the salvific view. And what is it? Election is an act of God before creation in which He chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, so no works involved in him making this choice, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. You will see this word sovereign thrown around everywhere. Okay, So it's by God's good pleasure that he decided before anything was ever created, he was going to save Sherry and not Mark. Okay, God just decided it. Now, here's another view on it. God's choice is not dependent on human merit or temporal circumstances. No works. They're very plain about that. We would agree. No works, okay? (coughs) Sovereignly, there's that word again, elects or chooses us unto eternal life before we exist and without our consent. That isn't to say that our voluntary consent isn't important. Everybody pay attention because the hamster's getting ready to die on the wheel, okay? That isn't to say that our voluntary consent isn't important. We must still believe in Jesus, okay? But our belief is itself the historical and experiential fruit or effect of God's pretemporal elective decree. Now you say, I don't even understand what the end of that means, okay? Here's what they're telling you. You were chosen to go to heaven when you die, and this person was not. And so therefore, God gave you faith as a gift, so that you would necessarily exercise it, so that you would go to heaven when you die, because you can't do anything other than what God wants for you. 
So that means that if Darcy has not been chosen, I can tell her the gospel 150 million times. I can stand out in front of her house with all kinds of petitions. I can preach to her till the day is long. But because God has not, before time began, flipped her switch so that it will happen, she will go to hell without any chance. These aren't my words. This is their words. It is predestination, which we're going to look at in two weeks. Don't ruin it for me. Okay. Because <laughs> that word comes up in verse 5. It comes up in verse 5. Now, here's what we're going to look at is a very brief treatment of this. If you want a more extensive treatment, on our website under the Sermons tab, we did a series not too long ago over the summer on Wednesday nights called Thinking Through Calvinism. And if you want, there's six sessions on there you can go through and you can even look at all the PDFs that we put, or the, uh, the uh, slides that we put together in a PDF form so that it would all be there on the website. You can listen through all of those. They're about an hour and a half each, okay? Yes, ma'am. I've actually heard them say John 3.16 is a complicated verse. I'm not for sure how to deal with it. Right, right. And I've heard some people say, I've heard some people also say, well, the word world there means not just those people who are elect now, but those people who he's elected in the future, okay? They would, they would definitely fight you on that and say it doesn't mean everyone. Now, here's the question. How did this come about? How did this idea of what they say election means come about? It appears to me that Augustine, this is where it came from in the 400s AD, Augustine's doctrine grew out of his thought that depravity was so strong. In other words, uh, how corrupt and evil we are according to the sin nature was so strong that it could be dealt with only by unconditional election. In other words, we're so horrible that God had to choose people because nobody would ever respond to him in faith. Now here's what's interesting about this. If you will pay attention to any of part of church history, you will find that up until about the time of 100 AD, this is when the Apostle John died. He wrote Revelation probably about 95, about five years later, he dies. And you have a bunch of guys that come up after them, people like Polycarp, uh, Origen, Clement of Rome, these type of people. They come up after this time period. So from 100 until about 350, you have this growth of what's known as the patristics, or they're also called the early church fathers. Either way, it's the same, same group of people. But you saw something happen to the doctrine of salvation in the Western church. Eastern and the Orthodox stuff was all going one certain direction. But the Western stuff started to morph into this idea that they began to require baptism for salvation. Okay? So now you've got this distortion of the very means of how someone would be saved. Is it faith alone? Or is it faith plus baptism? Well, when Augustine came on the scene, he came out of this fatalistic background known as Manichaean belief, okay? And it was pretty much all things have already been determined. Fate will have its way. You're just kind of subject to that and, 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 and it's going to get you kind of thing, okay? So it is a pagan belief. Yes, it has nothing to do with Christianity. When he became a believer in Christ, he actually began preaching and teaching the free will of people to either respond favorably or unfavorably to the gospel when they heard it. But as time went on, there started to become some questions in the church that he couldn't answer. And because he couldn't answer them, he started to fall back on these pagan beliefs and bringing them into Christianity. Now here's the problem that really got him to where he came to this conclusion about only some people are chosen or not. If baptism had been now put forward as the means by which somebody is saved, whether or not they made it to the baptismal waters, he saw two situations going on that he couldn't make sense of. Number one, you would have very upstanding, moral, well-to-do families who were having children, and for some reason some of those infants were dying before they could get them into the baptismal waters. This is where pedo-baptism came from, baptism of infants, okay? It was very early on in this situation. <clears throat> and he said, well, wait a second, they're all upstanding and well-to-do. Why in the world did this happen? However, he would find prostitutes who had gotten pregnant, and when they had children, they were able to get their children to the waters just fine. And they were baptized, and therefore, they were going to heaven when they died. And he concluded, this makes no sense. So the only possible conclusion I can come to is that God must have chosen these children to go to heaven when they die. And he didn't choose these children, and it's all left up to God and his sovereignty. It's not for us to know. Does anybody know who Augustine is? He's also known as the father of Catholic theology. So this is where we spring all of this idea from, and if the gospel wouldn't have got corrupted in that 350-year time span, 
We would have maintained faith alone as the apostles and Jesus had taught it. We wouldn't have had these problems sprout up. If you want to look at this, you can go on Amazon for $14.99, I think it is. You can get a, a, a book called Augustinian Calvinism by a man named Ken Wilson. He is one of two men on the face of the earth who have read all of Augustine's works from beginning to end in chronological order and then wrote his doctoral dissertation for Oxford on it and was rewarded a doctor of philosophy. I'm not going to argue with that dude, okay? But he, he shows it all out and unfolds the structure historically of how Augustine came to these views. He began to reject free will and said it's all up to God's choice and this is what has become now known as Calvinist doctrine. So notice that this doctrine was derived from erroneous conclusions in church history, not from the Word of God. Now, uh, let's see here. This is a guy named Bishop Davenant. He was actually an English delegate to Dort. Now, the Council of Dort took place in 1618 and 1619. When he said this, I don't know. But this is some 1,500 years after the fact that Augustine was promoting this, and Dort was the church council that codified this as accepted orthodox belief in the church. Okay, Here's what he said. Augustine died in A.D. 429, and up to his time, at least, there is not the slightest evidence that any Christian ever dreamed of a propitiation, talking about the death of Christ, for the elect alone. Even after him, the doctrine of a limited propitiation was but slowly propagated and for long but partially received. In other words, up until the time of Augustine, everybody believed that Jesus died for everybody. He's the first person to come along and promote this idea. And after 1,500 years, it began to catch on in the situation and then was codified as what we should all believe. I say, no. Okay? So what do we do? Let's go back to the Scriptures. What does the word chose mean? It is the Greek word eklegomai. It's a verb, okay? We're looking at particularly. There's also eklektos uh, and ekloge that are used in this. You could easily open up a Strong's and look at it, or you could get out literal word on your phone. You could go through. And the great thing about literal word is you go to Ephesians 1.4, you hold your finger on the word chose, and you click on everywhere it's used in the Bible. You can go through, you can read them all for yourself and come to your own conclusion about how the Bible uses this word, okay? It means to pick out something or someone. It means to make a choice in accordance with significant preference. If you've ever been getting ready to do a dodgeball situation or a kickball situation, you know what this feels like. Okay? You're chosen, and sometimes some people are chosen for the preference of how athletic they are. Sometimes a preference is involved in this. Okay? Now here's what's interesting. It is used as make choice, to choose 19 times or to choose out. But here's what's interesting is we find that this is what's known in the middle voice in Ephesians 1.4. What does the middle voice mean? Notice I've got it marked right here for you. To choose for oneself, not necessarily implying the rejection of what is not chosen, but choosing with the subsidiary ideas of kindness, favor, or love. Out of his kindness, favor, and love, God chose us. Now let me give you a trivia question. Where were we when He chose us? In the world? Is that what the Scripture says? Just as He chose us where? No, that's when He decided to do it. Where were we when He chose us? Read the Scripture. What's it say? No. Who said it? Say it, Mike. In Christ. We were exactly where the Scripture says we were. Just as He chose us. Where were we when He chose us? In Him. When did He decide to do that? Before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God decided that this was going to be like for Christians. Everybody see the personal inclusive pronoun? How many people is Paul including there? All believers in Christ, which means that this choosing or this election is corporate. It includes a lot of people. He's not talking about anything individual here. He chose you but didn't choose you. He chose you but didn't choose you. He's not talking about that. He's talking about that if you've responded to the gospel and you're now in Christ, God has now chosen you in Christ for something. Now the question is, what is that? Gordon Olson, fantastic book. The secular Greek usage of the verb had to do with electing or appointing people to an office or responsibility with an accompanying obligation to fulfill it responsibly. This is most important since democratic elections began in Greece and the word originated in that connection. 
Another guy, nerdy Greek guy, here's what he says. Although these words originate in military vocabulary, by the time of Plato, eklegomai and eklektos are already in use in a political sense referring to elections. In every case, it is a matter of electing people to perform a certain task or administer a certain office. It is always, however, accompanied by some kind of obligation or task concerned with the well-being of all the other members of the community. Close. Very close. That's part of it, yes. Now here's the interesting thing. The Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint, the word is derived from the Hebrew word bahar, which occurs 162 times. The participle forms bahur and bahir are used to describe specially chosen elite troops. Why were they chosen? Because they were elite. Why were you chosen? Because you're in Christ. You can't be chosen if you're not in Christ. That's what Paul is getting at. You have to be in Christ first. That is the pre-criteria for the choosing unto something. Cohen notes that eklektos also appears a number of times for Hebrew roots connoting. Thank you. Loveliness, preciousness, preciousness, or excellent condition. It is a choice jewel. They are a choice worker. Ferris Bueller said, I love driving Cameron's dad's car. It is so choice. No one gets that group. Ferris Bueller's day off. Okay, move on. Here, the adjective does not express the fact of being chosen, but in a wider sense, factors already present which make choice likely. Hold on to that in your mind. So what is he getting at here with the Greek translations? Number one, that people or groups were considered chosen to a task, obligation, or responsibility not to go to heaven when they die. It's about ministry, not eternity. Notice number two, that this choosing to a task, obligation, or responsibility is based upon some factor that makes this choosing likely, meaning that the people are in some way qualified for the task. Now this might absolutely rock or shake your understanding of this if you've studied it before or studied it in a particular vein. That's okay, I expect it to. If you've got comments about it, email me. My email address is on the back of the bulletin. I will have much more detailed notes for you probably about 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. So it will be posted on the pastor's blog. But don't be scared of this idea of election. If it's promoted in the way that you might not be chosen, I can understand you being terrified for years. I was. Because I was always looking for the fruit of whether or not I was chosen based on how I performed, what I did, what I thought, what I said. There's no salvation in those things. So if we just read the text for what it says, what are some of these spiritual blessings? Christ is the locale of which you've been placed in, and then God chose you for something, for a task, for an obligation, for a ministry. Now, how do we know this is true? Let's compare it with what else we can see in the Bible. And again, you can do this with all that you want, but let's just look at a few here. Number one, since we're dealing with Paul, think about when he was called. We looked at this a couple of months ago when he was called. This, this is God talking to Ananias about going, laying your hands on him so that the scales would fall. Look what he says. The Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to go to heaven when he dies now. No, what for? To bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. He's chosen to a task, obligation, or ministry in order to fulfill. How about the next one? This is speaking at the Jerusalem council and there's confusion about the nature of the gospel. And Peter stands up and he wants to say something and it's actually really good this time, okay? After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. What was Peter chosen for? He was chosen to take the gospel to the Gentiles as first initial introduction to it. He was given the keys of the kingdom. Was he not in Acts 2, the one who opened the door for the Jews? God used him to do that. He chose him for that task. In Acts chapter 10, he preaches to Cornelius' house. Is he not the one that God chose in order to have that door open? Absolutely he is, and he reiterates that here. How about Jesus? Very interesting. On the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Remember, it takes Peter and James and John with him. They see everything going on. Moses and Elijah are there. They're having some sort of private conversation. Peter wants to start building tents. I mean, it's just like the whole thing going on. And glory's just radiating off this place. And then they hear a voice from heaven. It came out of a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. My chosen one. Now, if I were looking at this from the salvific view, I would have to conclude that he is one of many possible saviors of which God is going to arbitrarily grab hold of based on no merit within himself and no consideration of his character, person, history, whatever, and thrust him forward as the savior of the world. Is Jesus Christ one of many possible saviors that could have been chosen? No, he's specially qualified and he's chosen because he had a particular task. What did he constantly say throughout John? My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Time for what? Time to die on the cross for the sins of the world. That's why he was chosen by God, because he's the only perfect substitute Lamb of God. He was chosen for a ministry, an obligation to fulfill. He's not one of many possible candidates. He is the candidate that, when chosen, was commissioned with the task that needed to be executed. How about this? This is always a fun one that messes people up. You'll have dreams about this one. It's good. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is Peter speaking to Jesus. Don't you want to leave too, guys? Peter speaks on behalf of all of them. No, you're the Holy One of God. We're recognizing that. Jesus answered, did I not myself choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Did Jesus choose a devil to go to heaven when he dies? Was Judas doing ministry alongside the other 11 on Christ's behalf? Notice that even Judas was chosen for a task, obligation, something to fulfill for a ministry. Notice, now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him, eliminating all possible confusion about what this might be. When we see the idea of being chosen or elect in Scripture, we need to ask ourselves, chosen for what? If the Scripture doesn't say go to heaven when you die, don't buy into that. And don't think that. Always ask the question, what is this person in mind or myself in mind here in the text being chosen for? You will undoubtedly find it is a task, responsibility, and ministry. So what are some applications we can pull from this? Well, number one, dealing with verse three, have you ever thought about why you worship God? When we stand up and we sing, when Emily is leading us in worship, what's on our minds? Credit card bill? Vacation plans? Whether or not the brooch you chose to wear today looks smashing with your outfit? <clears throat> now that's silly, but man, understand this. I don't know if you guys realize this. We're in a war. And Satan is trying to do everything he can to lead our minds astray. And in the midst of exalting the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will do whatever he can Try to put a thought in there to just get us off the mark. Stop thinking about Jesus and start looking at yourself. How you don't add up or how other people might be looking at you. Or what you've got to do today, because that's way more important than what's going on now. It's not. Our minds occupied with who he is and what he's done when we sing, pray, study. All these things are worship. All these things are what Paul is leading us to at the beginning, worshiping him. Number two, our already blessings are complete and equal. With that of the Apostle Paul, there's no inferiority in Christ. If you have responded to the gospel in faith, you are now a believer in Jesus, and you have been placed in Jesus. Any feelings of you not adding up are not from Him. Any idea of being a lesser than is not from Him. Any fear that you're not going to make it in the end. Hey, are you saved? I hope so. Stop all that. I know so. Why? Because I'm a child of God and I'm in Christ and period. He did a great job. Done. And I am just as equal with Paul. I'm just as equal with Jesus because God has made it so in His Son. Understand this. All of those feelings of inferiority, they're not valid. They're not right. They're not reality. And they try to rob you of the appreciation and joy that's found in already having every spiritual blessing. But also the last one. God's choice of you is because, number one, you're in Christ. It's a fact when you heard the gospel and you responded, He placed you in a position of blessing, and one of those blessings is, is God has chosen you for something to do. In fact, everybody in here, 
Let's do, let's do a really good illustration for this. You ready? Here we go. Pay attention. Look up here. Everybody, breathe in the nose, out the mouth. Here we go. Anybody die? You know what that means? God still has something for you to do. He still has a task, obligation, or ministry that He has commissioned you with to fulfill on this earth for the glory of His name because you are in Christ. And when He's done with you, He's done. And you get to graduate into His presence. He will take you to be with Him. You take steps up and on. Are you being faithful with what He's given you now? You say, well, I don't know what He's given you now. Man, our prayer life just got on fire. God, what would you have me to do? And who would you have me to reach? I'll tell you this from what I know about the Bible. It will never be apart from the concepts of evangelism and discipleship. It's either sharing Christ or encouraging and edifying people with Christ. Whether you have a speaking or serving gift, it doesn't matter. They fall in that category, and so you can narrow it down pretty good. God just needs to fill in the holes. So constantly petition Him for that. If we are in Christ, we've been chosen for something. And what is that? It's a purpose, a task, or a ministry to fulfill. Boy, since I came to know the Lord, I've just got purpose in my life. Well, what is that? Fill in that blank. Because I guarantee this, God didn't choose one person to sit still and do nothing. Not one person. Nobody got the spiritual gift of not on a log. It didn't happen. Not one person. He's called us all to do something. You know what? And don't get freaked out that it's not something huge. Maybe it's something as simple as, you know what? I can't do too much, but what I can do is I can pray. The idea that you're able to bring names in an intercessory position before the throne of God every day, tell me that's not special. Seeking you will find. Ask, it will be given to you. Knock, he'll open the door. Keep doing it. Because if we know how to give good gifts to our kids now, how much more does our Heavenly Father know how to give? If praying is all that you can do and you know that that's what God's called you to do, then do it and add me to your list. Please. It doesn't have to be something explosive, massive. We all don't have to be Billy Grahams. We can just be who we are in Christ and what God has commissioned us to do in His Son. There's a lot of comfort in that. There's a lot of peace in that. There's a lot of security in that. And guess what? It constantly puts the floodlights back upon him, back upon him. So if you're not singing on fire in this next song, we need to talk after service, okay? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are incredible in how you have issued forward a love for us and your son, giving every spiritual blessing. And God, you deserve nothing but praise. You have chosen us for a reason, for a task. There's something for us to do something for us to move forward in. Maybe we're not sure what that is. Lord, how we need to seek your face on that matter now. I ask God, please, hear our prayers. Know, Father, that our hearts need to be sincere before you in asking these things. That we would just come to you continually. We were never called to serve ourselves. We have one that is worth serving. And we are unconditionally in him from this point forward. Thank you, God, for blessing upon blessing and grace upon grace. We pray it in His blessed name. Amen.